data, only the best guests to educate our audience. History, unapologetically honest conversations. Welcome to Why Pay, the case for reparations. All right, we're back. Another episode of uh, Why Pay, making the case for reparations. This is um, Alan Holmes, the host, and we have Ashley Drake for with us tonight. Hello, how are you? So what's up? I'm glad you came and, and did this episode, Ashley, because we think that our audience definitely needs to learn about what you've been doing in Maryland with urban gardening, your passion for agriculture and urban gardening, and also why you support reparations. Because this is a continuation of a series I started called Faces of Reparations. And basically, I just interview people who support reparations, but just also learn about them, what they do, their professions, why they came to change course and push for reparations instead of just mm-hmm. pushing for other policy. And so we just want to give people an idea of the people who support reparations. You know, it's a diverse group, you know, men, women, people that are 80 years old and people that are our age, you know, in our uh, mid 30s. So it's all types of people. So we have to make sure that their stories are told so that we can get more people to back it. So we're glad you came on today. So the first question we have for you, since we talked about urban gardening, we just want to give you space to talk to the audience about yourself and also about what you do for a living and also the capital market. Okay. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Like you said, I think that the faces of people who are pushing for reparations are, you know, different. It's a variety. It's a very diverse group. And I think that it's not just about like people in the United States. I think that you know, there is a passion for it amongst like, you know, all of the African nations that have been colonialized, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. The African diaspora is the word I was looking for. So yeah, Ashley Drake Ford. I am a graduate of North Carolina A&T. Pride, you already know how we do. All right, exactly. So I am a graduate of North Carolina a and I work as a business development manager in Maryland. So that's what I do for my you know, career. My passion, like you said, is a lot of people think it's like food equity, which right now, um, you know, food equity is a really big part of my passion. But really, I would say that my passion is just building a better community or building a more equitable community, right? And certainly reparations is a part of that. So, you know, it comes from working with the capital market, which is a farmer's market in the Capitol Heights area. Typically, uh, people would say that the capital market is within a food desert in Prince George's County. I don't like to use the term food desert because a desert is something that occurs naturally, right? It's something that occurs naturally and a food desert does not. It is set up through systemic oppression and policies that are specific right, that govern communities that make it so that neighborhoods don't have a grocery store. And so, you know, I'd rather say food apartheid or whatever the case is. So I am an an organizer for the capital market. We're going into our fourth year. We're actually opening up two locations this year. So it's really exciting. And as a part of the capital market as well, I am a gardener, I teach gardening. I facilitate gardening workshops for uh, different communities to help people learn how to master their green thumb and to help give them the confidence to learn how to grow fresh veggies and fruits and flowers and all that good stuff. 
So yeah, I just like, I have a lot of fun working in the ground, working with the earth and working with people and building community, right? That's like my end goal. And I've I've probably been like this since I was like a little girl, Um, just like trying to change the world and trying to make the world so that like everybody can enjoy all the things that I do. So, yeah. Yeah. Now, it's it's interesting you bring it up. We actually going to shift and talk about one thing that I had discussed with you before this interview, which was innovative things that can be done in cities with vacant lots. So in Atlanta, you talking about a food desert just made me realize where I used to live. And it wasn't more than five miles from where I live now, but it was Southwest Atlanta, mm-hmm. basically an area called uh, Venetian Hills. But there really wasn't a grocery store that was in as close distance as it should. You know, a lot of people depending on the corner stores, uh, which there were a lot of, mm-hmm. but it's not sustainable. We had one urban garden, which was good, and it's, and it's, it's continued to, to grow. But did you know that there's a state law that was passed in Georgia about five years ago that allows a city, any city in Georgia, to basically take to court and attempt to foreclose on a vacant property that has a history of code enforcement violations? Really? A lot of LLCs, companies in Atlanta, companies own a lot of the property, right? So Mm -hmm. law was meant to help cities that were trying to fix up lots that millionaires own that they weren't cutting the grass. Right. You know, the windows are broken into everything, right? So if cities in Georgia start to actually use this law to get vacant properties, one thing they can do and they should do is put it for public use. It says that in the law. It doesn't require it. So that means urban garden is a public Mm -hmm. use. Mm -hmm. So why couldn't we turn a vacant lot into an urban garden? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that you see a lot of that in the D.C. area. You see a lot of that in Maryland. So you see that a bunch of other cities. So in Detroit, they have something called Detroit Hives. And that's essentially what they've done. They've taken those vacant lots and turned them into beehives. Right. And so it's become like a big thing in Detroit. But you see it in cities like D.C., like Maryland and Hyattsville right now. They have shifted to now become like an arts district. And Hyattsville is, you know, a city in Maryland. It's right outside of Washington, D.C., you know, a lot of what they do is typically what you see happen is they tap like community gardens, people that do all sorts of community work. So like community gardens are artists, right? And so that's the thing that kind of makes people believe in these like opportunity zones, right? Where you see new development. It's like, do I want to buy my house there? And you're like, oh, well, they put in a community garden there or they have a community center with all of this artwork and murals painted out. So maybe the neighborhood is changing. So, um, you know, like how you mentioned, like, I think that there are a lot of creative ways that we can be using this vacant space. But since you mentioned it, so have you ever heard of a victory garden? I have not. What's what's the victory garden? So a victory garden came about around like, can't remember if it's World War One or World War Two, but essentially because all of the men were off fighting and the U.S. was spending so much money on funding this war, number one, you didn't have the labor, so you didn't have the people, the men that were working in these factories. So you know there was a huge interruption in the supply chain, right? And a lot of the food was going to the war, and so. Victory Gardens was seen as, or they promoted Victory Gardens as a way to do like your civic duty. And so I'm from up north, but my 
grandma on my father's side is from South Carolina, right? And so anybody that you know that lives up north, but they had grandparents in the south, a lot of them will remember that their grandparents always had like a small garden, right? That's kind of where it comes from because the government was pushing. They were calling it victory gardens. So the government essentially said in any free space that you see, any free grassy area, doesn't matter where it is. Plant seeds, plant, you know, gardens, plant fruits and vegetables because the supply chain could not support feeding, you know, all of its citizens. Right. And so what we saw with the pandemic was almost kind of going back or almost kind of switching back to that victory garden mindset of not waiting on the supply chain to kind of like give us the food that we need. So last year, 2020, you had all of the stores like Home Depot and Lowe's, even the mom and pop shops that were struggling to make ends meet. You couldn't find any seeds. You couldn't find seeds. You couldn't find soil. You couldn't find anything like that because even like I ordered my seeds from like some of the bigger seed suppliers, they were out. Like they couldn't keep up. They could not keep up with demand. So you saw that resurgence of Victory Gardens kind of come back. So, And that's what we need. So we're going to talk more about that later in the episode, because I think that's important because, you know, we, we want reparations, which, you know, as I've always said, has to include cash. But on top of that, there are things that we can get that can be symbolic of 40 acres and a mule. I don't think it's ever going to get to the point where they give every black person that wants it 40 acres because also how do you, you have to have the capital to farm 40 acres, right? Or do something with 40 acres. Right. But we could get plots, right? Plots of land, parcels, a parcel here, a parcel there. That's not 40 acres, but that's something. So we're going to talk more about that. Now, one thing I want to just ask you is why do you believe strongly that reparations is owed to Black Americans, the center for slaves. You said one reason? <laughs> oh, listen, you, you can go on, but maybe your number one. Right. So my number one is because it's owed to us, right? I mean, it's a debt that was owed that has never been paid, right? And so it's still, you know, there's still a, che- a check, a un, you know, an uncashed check that's out. What was his name? Reverend, I mean, not Reverend Sherman, General William Sherman, whatever his order was that that called for, you know, 40 acres and a mule, like that was signed and accepted. Right. And then I think it was uh, reversed by who was it? Andrew Jackson. Andrew Johnson. Terrible. He was the worst. Right. Right. And so it needs to be paid. Yeah, and I think it's interesting learning more about that. I think that they need to be talking about General Sherman more. We need to learn about this dude. This is the general who was trying hard to give black people tens of thousands of acres. Mm-hmm. And even after you know that he received pushback for his field order, he still tried to push it. And I'm like, yo, this, he had to be a good guy. We never hear about him though. Right. Unless you've done research, you don't hear about him at all. Yeah. Yeah. But at the time, he was somebody who was really trying to push for it. So, I mean, I think, you know, I agree with you. It's kind of like I don't want to hear that 11 to 14 trillion dollars is too much money because, you know, this could be a public private partnership. Right. There's public private partner everything now on the local level and state level. So, listen, if 50 of the largest Fortune 500 companies in America, if they want to 
come up with six trillion, then I'm cool with that too. I don't care how they get it. Well, yeah, I agree because I mean, how many like what what do we see? We saw Georgetown University. I think that that's one of like the most recent universities that can comes to mind that they are acknowledging their part in in the enslavement of Africans. And so they're offering reparations in the form of you know, tuition, et cetera, or whatever the case is. But like how many American, not just American companies, right? But American companies, British companies that are humongous companies were literally CSX. I mean, you know, that are literally, what is it? Like all sorts of insurance companies that are built off the back of enslaved work labor, right? And so they would not be where they are without, our ancestors, right? And so how dare they think that they should just be able to kind of like steal this work. But I mean, I'm saying how dare they think, but it's the audacity of- You're right. And did you hear about Brooks Brothers? Speaking of companies, you heard about Brooks Brothers? I know that they are one company, but Wells Fargo, Wachovia is another one. Yeah, but with the, the- What happened with Brooks Brothers? No, the just their connection directly to the slave trade is, is just crazy to think. They made the clothes for the slaves going to auction. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's mm-hmm. like, you know what? But it, it doesn't it kind of make sense because have you noticed like in the South for sure, Brooks Brothers is like, it seems to me like a brand that every Southern person with money, right? They were all wearing it and they still wear it. And I'm thinking, okay, well, then this had to, they had to have been around forever. Everybody, nobody thinks of that. Yeah. Like how did they? They became a household name some way, right? And how did they become a household name, right? Yeah, because I'm from Ohio. I'm not from the South. I'm sure they might wear Brooks Brothers somewhere in Ohio, but I started to see it heavily when I was in the South. So it it makes sense. But um, but no, that that is, I think, all the reasons that you uh, brought up are good. So next, we're going to Twitter bookmarks. So, you know, you and me both are on Twitter a lot. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go to Twitter bookmark. I bookmark everything. That Twitter serves me because they track us all. So like you already know they like they serve me articles about the wealth gap to just pop up. So I save everything. So we random with this and we're gonna get your feedback. Mm-hmm. So American companies, they pledged fifty billion dollars to black communities after George Floyd was murdered. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Most of it hasn't materialized. Surprise. Surprise. Fortune magazine, they wrote about it. And they're probably not hiring any more of us either. See, it's like they're not putting any money up towards anything. The money they have put up, they've donated to some organizations who are going to blow it. And then thirdly, they're not even going to finish the commitment. Mm-hmm. So the way I see it is so much money has been wasted because, you know, some companies have just put up money because they didn't know what to do right after George Floyd. Mm-hmm. They could have put that all in a reparations fund. Yeah. Because to be honest, none of that is really hitting the people. Yeah. You know, what I'm like some of these organizations have enriched themselves, but it's not hitting the people, and it, and the money will be gone soon once you know things kind of go back to normal. So this was an opportunity they could just put it into a reparations fund. So I mean, I guess my thoughts on that is like, who do you blame? Do you blame these companies or do you blame who's accountable, right? So if there is no uh, clear and direct plan 
Or if there is not, if we are not, like I used to tell my Girl Scouts this all the time, or I tell people this all the time, period, right? If there is no one that's continuing to hold these companies accountable or your elected officials accountable and continuing to hold their like feet to the fire, then like, of course, they just going to do whatever. You know what I'm saying? Because we like, all right, do, 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 I mean, I think that that was like miseducation of the Negro. That was like one of Carter G. Woodson's thing. Like, okay, like you can't have protests without some sort of plan, right? They both have to go together. So yes, you protested, you made noise, or we have now a set of eyes on this, but are we doing the work? Are we like following through the same thing when you vote? Like, are you following through to actually make sure that what was supposed to be done is going to be done, right? Yeah. What I say is I think we're at a good time though, where even though the strategy is not where it should be, I agree with you. There are more and more people who are thinking like we do in terms of pushing for reparations and the fact that we just have to push aggressively for it and focus on it. And so at some point, I hope you have some people in corporate America who start to speak up about it, right? Mm-hmm. They're already, it's already happened. Bob Johnson, right? Former founder of BET. He's pushing it. So the plan he's pushing is exactly the plan that we need. It's 11 to 14 trillion. Now, it's not his plan. It's just he pretty much is running with what economists have been saying, which they have been accurate. Mm-hmm. And so and if he did it, you already know it's only a matter of time before a couple more business leaders and people push for it because he had no reason to say anything. Mm-hmm. He's a billionaire. He doesn't have to care about, he's one of those 3%, you know, in terms of black people who have real wealth. It's only 3% that we can show. Mm-hmm. He's part of that. He doesn't have to care about any of this, but he understands it. And so I, I think that's when over the next two or three years, you're going to see more of a push. Because I think, too, we have to be smart about this is, you know, since I'm in politics, I already can predict the pushback that might happen as this moves on. Right. The first one is going to be you can't specify. Right. You can't specify this money to go to these people. I say, okay, well, I know certain parts of the country where the majority of the people that live there were slave descendants. You know what I mean? I was going to say, why can't you specify? Well, you may be able to specify what I'm saying is if they pass a rep, let's say the feds pass a reparations plan that specifies, mm-hmm. I'm talking about all the blowback that's going to happen that they're going to have to beat down, beat back. You already know. But see, the thing about it is I'm not mad. So I'm kind of like with Professor Darity on like descent, uh, reparations, the United States owes reparations to the American descendants of enslaved Africans. The UK probably owes reparations to... Correct. Right? But I'm saying the UK probably owes reparations to descendants of US enslaved Africans as well because they was bankrolling it at some point, right? But they... Jamaica, what is it? Uh, Barbados, you know what I'm saying? Like, But we're talking about our government, right? And so, yeah. Now, I think this is what I think, though. No, because I definitely think that the the actual cash payment should be to descendants of slaves, and they can say that. One thing I say is that we need more than, we need the money, but we need the money and programs. That's what I keep telling people. It's this is we're not saying we just need reparations. No, we need the housing programs. Right. We need the small business programs, mm-hmm. and we need the reparations because the reparations covers everybody. 
Right. And that's what I keep telling people is, I'm not saying we don't need small business aid, but every black person doesn't own a business. Right. I'm not saying we don't need student loan relief, but not, not every black person went to college. And we don't have to. We shouldn't have to if we don't want to, right? Yeah. And actually, the, the current black agenda that's out there mainly is, is carving out. So there's people who will not be helped. Right. If you go to college, you won't be helped with student loan relief. Yeah. If you, you know what I mean? If you don't have a, a lot of people don't have a business, but we all descend from slaves. Right. We're all in the same, we really are in the same boat. And so we need to all be covered. Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of that's kind of what we need to push. But what I say is, I think that we got to get creative about one thing I've been telling people is if you what could undercut this is if it's not isolated to black people who are descendants of slaves. This for everybody that's going to actually undercut it because people what people are thinking is the opponents could say, well, actually the U.S. government didn't harm Jamaican Americans. To the tune of 11 to 14 trillion, even though harm, they definitely have been harmed like we've all been harmed, racism and all that. But it's the wealth being removed. But I think that that's even like something that's completely something different that America can handle at a different time. Like we are talking specifically about 40 acres and and a mule and the effects of that debt not being paid. Now, all that Jim Crow racism, you know what I'm saying? That's another debt, right? Yeah, and we're going to have to find a way because we have to find a way and they're going to have to give us some leeway on eligibility. Obviously, you know, we as a people, the records were destroyed, right? A lot of these records were destroyed. So we can't, a lot of stuff we can't prove, but they need to allow, just assume that if certain things are met, then we were here. So one thing I said today, I was like, one way to prove eligibility to start out, because, you know, we just going it's going to have to be like a pilot program. Right. I don't think it might not be a situation where everybody gets it immediately. Mm-hmm. Maybe we start out and say so we can prove about the quickest people who are eligible. Why don't we look up black people who have descended from World War Two veterans? Because if you look at the numbers, a lot of black people did not immigrate to America. Mm-hmm. Until the 60s. Right. So everything before that. Majority of black people in America were slave descendants. That was it. Mm-hmm. So let's start with descendants of World War II veterans. We can probably look up that. You know, that information. That information at least is probably kept. Right. You know, when you when you become a soldier, they're gonna keep your info. Right. Right. Look up those people. Mm-hmm. Connect with their families. We know they're in. Let's start with them first. So we gotta figure out. That's why, like, I think we need people actually who want to focus on the infrastructure that we need, right? Mm-hmm. Who would build a database of people, maybe veterans, I mean, excuse me, veterans, descendants. And just like, you know, somebody who's good with data, because that's important, right? right? We can't, we got to think about the point where if we were really close for this legislation being passed, right. we right. would have to have the infrastructure because they're not going to just, right. that's going to hold stuff up. If it's Yeah, so I think we got to think about that. And we need people with all types of talents focused on this stuff so absolutely absolutely we listen yeah. i already know with my family i'm a sixth generation prince george's county resident we could trace my family history back to they can actually trace the plantation that my family was from in prince george's county oh for it wait how did, you, did y'all do what did y'all pay for to get the history well my sister is an urban planner for the county and so that's uh, historic records. Well, that's her work, and and she's working on her doctorate right now in urban planning. So that's the work that she does. So she's our family historian, and the plantation where our family is from, they're actually about to make that a museum in Maryland. 
or a museum here. And it'll be the first museum in Maryland that's told from the enslaved perspective. And so really what they want to do is like tell it from the enslaved perspective, but like bring it to the future and say like, these are the families that are still like living and thriving and like kind of trace that lineage that still live in the county or what have you. Wait, so your family, well, the I guess the beginning of the family, they were slaves in Maryland yeah. and you grew up in Maryland. I am a sixth generation Prince George's County resident. Wow. That's, I wonder how many, how often that story is because I know, you know, people who are all over the country, their grandparents might've been slaves in like South Carolina and they, you know, they live in Texas. That's crazy. So your family is just, and does everybody in your family live in Maryland? Like the, My mom's side, well, everybody lives in Maryland. So it's yeah. actually a pretty cool, it's a pretty interesting story. And because my sister is an urban planner, I get to learn about like a lot of these things. And so my family is from a plantation in Capitol Heights, right? And so the family kind of lives still in this same area, right? Which is like around, it used to be a place called Huntsville, and it's right on the border of D.C. Capitol Heights is right on the border. Yeah, I, yeah, I know. So it used to be called Huntsville, but it's not called that anymore. Yeah. And like, that's where all of my, you know, my grandma's family, even my grandfather's family, they still live around there. They still own the house around there. But my family, so fast forward, my great great grandfather, I believe, he was a trustee for this church called Ridgely United Methodist Church, right? It is a historical site in Maryland. So they can't, like, it's a one-room church. It's a historical site. They are buried there, right? This just so happens to be right across the street from where we do our farmer's market. Oh, wow. And my family owns, so my great-great-grandfather was also a farmer, and they own a significant amount of land. Urban renewal happened, and somehow the county claimed eminent domain and my family no longer owns all of that land that we own, right? But because my sister, because my sister is an urban planner and she has the knowledge and the wherewithal to understand this a little bit better and to learn how to look up records, she has actually found like, this is where we own land. This is what they did, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, so we kind of have that history to be able to go back and see like what happened. Oh, so y'all dubbed her the historian and she sounds like she's responsible for all the records and keeping up with everything. Yeah, or she kind of dubbed herself the historian because she just kept looking and looking. So she's into that type of stuff. Wow, that's, oh, we might need her to create a startup company or something to do. No, seriously, because the way, I mean, the way I'm thinking about it, this is a serious problem because when you told me about your family history, I'm thinking about my family history and I know where my grandparents are from. Mm-hmm. But I don't know deeper. I don't know as much I, in terms of if I could find paperwork. Yeah. So that's going to be a problem. You, that's going to be a problem for a lot of black people that we just, it's not even, well, I'm, I'm not going to say it's, it's really not our fault, but we probably should have been, somebody should have been the historian. Somebody, somebody should have been like your sister because the, that's the only way. Like through, right through generations, it has to pass through or the history will kind of get hard. Yeah, but when we talk about, so you're right, it's not our fault, right? Because when we talk about like how I mentioned like food equity, right? And how it's not a food desert. These are systems and policies that have been put in place that affect our health, that affects the food that we eat, that affects the neighborhoods that we live in, right? It's by design and it's 
intentional and purposeful, right? And so these policies that are put in place make it so that my mother passed at 44, I'm excuse me, at 47, right? Because she lived in a neighborhood or in a community that set up adverse effects or that the longevity, essentially what I'm saying is policies have set it up so that our life expectancies are different from the life expectancies of someone, let's say, I live in I live in Hyattsville. My life expectancy is maybe 10 years less than what somebody that lives in Rockville, Maryland, right? And so these are all by design. So when you when you're losing people earlier than someone else, you lose history. <laughs> you lose a part of your culture, right? And so yeah. there's no one to tell you those stories or to help you connect the dots so that you can go back and research a little bit easier so that you have those documents, right? So I say that to say it's not our fault. It isn't. I mean, and I hope that, you know, we have people working on that because like I said, we need all hands on deck. We need lawyers engineers we're going to need everybody to help with this and i think that's something we're going to focus on and the, the one last question i have for you ashley is an npr podcast i listened to recently i believe it was planet money like i i have a lot of respect for npr because they've been hitting on reparations they have so many podcasts i can't keep up they do have a lot of podcasts but on separate npr podcasts they've been talking about the wealth gap and reparations, and one of the episodes, one of the, the economists, one of the economists who was in being interviewed, talked about how they she's been pushing the Biden administration to not just track racial equity data, but to dig deeper within when you're looking at Black people, did they descend from slaves? Mm-hmm. In terms of having that as an identifier on a sheet to track what is specifically happening. Right. to descendants of slaves, which is huge because we don't have, we need the broken down data. Yeah. We can't really fix, we really can't fix the root of the problem. Mm-hmm. And so that's one thing they're pushing for. But another another one that stood out to me was the racial millennial wealth gap. That's one of their recent episodes. So they, they showed that, did you know that a older white millennial has $83,000 more wealth than the older black millennial. Mm-hmm. Older white millennial has about $83,000 of net worth of assets, net worth, cash. Older black millennial, $5,000. Yeah. Now, both the black and white millennials are both behind older black and white generations at the same time, are behind economically. But mm-hmm. the older white millennials have caught up for the most part. Right. We have not. Did you know that despite older black generations that had less education than we are. We're very educated, right? Right. We all know a million people who went to college, many who have grad degrees, law degrees, dentists, all that, engineers. They had $10,000 of net worth when they were millennials. Your parents and my parents were never millennials. Right. We have five. So the question I have for you, Ashley, is economically, what does the future hold for Black millennials? Yeah, I mean... For black millennials? Older. I guess it said older black millennials, so I guess that means... No, I mean when we get older, right? So I unfortunately am not optimistic. I feel like what's the generation that's coming behind us? I feel like we are laying the groundwork and putting in things for the next generation behind us. What are they called? What's the TikTok generation? 
on it, Gen Z. There we go. I feel like we're putting in the work for them. And I feel like a lot of this framework that we're talking about right now in terms of like these companies and holding their feet to the fire and reparations, right? I feel like our generation is not going to get the true benefit of that, but the people right behind us might. Right. And I don't. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I just don't. I just don't. Unfortunately, I don't believe that. I think I kind of agree with you for the most part, but I guess it all depends on how quickly reparations will happen. I'm kind of one of those people. I'm in politics, so I understand how the game goes. And the game is maybe if it's 100 percent right, the chance of actually reparations passing is probably like 15 to 20 percent. Right. But with that being said, that it's not I don't think it's impossible. What I do believe is the likelihood that people are going to get pissed off enough to push for it is increasing. Mm -hmm. So let's say I feel like I'm in my late 30s and any reparations that I would get, I mean, yes, they would, they're probably benefit my children when I have children more than they would benefit me. Right. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, no, you're right. And I mean, I think that I would like to think that, you know what I'm saying? The stars could align on this. I think that this is all dependent on if we can continue increasing the number of Black people. That's put, actually, all Americans who are pushing for this. Let me just be clear about that. Because what I'm seeing, too, is I've seen more white people that I know talk about Black Americans deserve reparations. Yeah. Now, probably still not as many as it should be, let's be honest. But it would happen faster if all Americans started talking about this. And so, because that's why with our podcast, we want everybody to support it. Mm-hmm. But if we're just Black people supporting it, we, we ain't going to get it. Right, right. We're not going to get it. Like, let's be honest. We're not going to get it. We control 3% of the wealth. It can't just be us. It needs to be everybody who's just like, listen, I'm not saying it's not white people, Hispanic people, Indian Americans who are struggling and they feel like they're not getting any help. I get it. But they, all of them are going to just, everybody's going to have to say, we understand history. We understand Black Americans have been screwed over bad. It's right. terrible. Mm-hmm. And they're going to have to support it. Because one of my homeboys said he threw some uh, white dude for a loop when he was like, this poor white guy that he knew, right? Mm-hmm. Who's, his whole family was poor. They were always poor. Mm-hmm. Generations of just poverty. They were talking back and forth about the reparations. And the white guy like, you know, like, whatever, whatever I'm against that, man, because I've been struggling too. And he's like, well, I support your claim too. Right. You know, like poor white Americans, if you really look at it, they've been screwed too. Mm-hmm. I'm not, and my bumble is like, I'm not against that either. I'm saying that our claim is separate from your claim. So we're working on our claim. Right. But I support your claim. Yeah. Yeah. You have to, so that's what you have to work that out. And, exactly. Like, and it's not the same thing. Right. Yeah. It's not the same thing. It's just like, you think, but and that's why if you throw people for a loop and they have to understand that if they want this to close, this gap, the only way to be closed is that our wealth, our net worth must increase because everything else, I should say it's not that actually you or I should not be investing in stocks, trying to have some rental properties and a regular house, having side incomes. It's not that we shouldn't do that because we should, making sure that our credit score stays high and <laughs> that low. We should obviously be doing that. But that's separate. The wealth that we can create for ourselves now from just being smart, yes, we're going to create that. But that's separate from the $420,000 that we're owed. Right. That's, that's separate. Right. We're going to still grind regardless of whether we... If you 
me money. You don't get to tell me what I get to do with the money that you owe me. <laughs> no. Yeah, it's that, that's just how it goes. It's like I don't understand, and 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 I, I want to speak, and I hope that a lot of black people stop asking this question. Like, well, we're not going to burns me up. Spend the money wisely. What happened? Why? Why, why are y'all? Did did they do this to Japanese Americans? They did not. They just got a check. Right. It wasn't a debate about what they were going to do. And 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 I know Japanese Americans were probably like, we deserved it because we got interned. Right. We were removed from our homes. I think they should have got it. I'm glad they got it. Right. But you know, we got to stop with this. Like, and I hear a lot. So we we have work to do, Ashley, because we have some black people who are still like. Trying to talk themselves out of why we should get this. I don't understand. Even though they deserve it. I I want them to get it too. But we have work to do. But listen, I appreciate you coming on. This is Faces of Reparations. This was a good episode because we need to talk about urban gardening. Yeah. We need to talk about homesteading because this could be a modern day homesteading. And I'm going to end last two or three minutes with just getting back to the whole concept of well, maybe we should create some programs to turn vacant lots into urban gardens, but then have a situation where if, we, if it's an applicant that's Black, that's a descendant of a slave, we kind of provide them some resources to live on the property and farm. Yeah. It'd be nice if they farmed a whole lot, but also homesteading, which is how it should have happened, was Black people were given land from the government. Mm-hmm. So we can... Do that now with an urban lot. And I'm talking about, I want to do it strictly in urban cities because we got to remember if you and me were given 80 acres now and we have no additional wealth, we will be limited right. to what we can do. You know how it is that you you get more in the garden now. And like, let's just say you run an urban garden, you understand if you really run one, it's money. Right. You, there's costs. Yeah. So if we got 40 acres but no wealth, we can't, there's no capital to tap to really build out. So we could get like in Atlanta, just like in D.C., just like in Philly and Baltimore, other places, Memphis. The lots are not so big that you couldn't do something with it if you got it. Right. I've been down to Memphis. Like I've been going to Memphis until the pandemic for the Bill Street Music Festival. And what I did was I... Um, was able to start doing some research on vacant home lots in Memphis. Mm-hmm. Memphis is a city where the lots are traditional, you know, just kind of decent size, but not big. Could be easily turned into an urban garden. Memphis has a huge problem with vacant home, lots and homes. Mm-hmm. You can get the lots for as little as $50. Right. And I think that there's so much potential for homesteading. Homesteading in like, like oh, you're talking about like in like Southern cities. No, any city. In, I'm talking about any city could do it. Any urban city where they have problems with vacant lots. Mm. Turn it into a garden or you build a house on it and maybe fund someone living there as long as they farm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm all for equitable, any form of equitable types of programs that allow people to take care of themselves. That's my thing, you know, it's allow me to take care of myself. Don't just like dump, you know, dump things on me 
et cetera, et cetera. You know, I want to be able to learn how to fish, learn how to do it on my own, pay what I owe, right? But make the system equitable Mm -hmm. so that, you know, I'm not paying a crazy amount or I'm not starving. I don't have access. Like, I think that everybody wants to be able to have like the dignity to, you know, do what they need to do and take care of it for themselves, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. So listen, Ashley, we thank you for coming on. And we think this is a good episode. We definitely needed to talk about more about urban gardening reparations. And then the fact about hey, what, what, what do we do if they do offer us some land? So I think this episode has been good because it's actually had, hopefully our audience thinks about maybe what they would do if the government gave land. For sure. And so you have to do something with it. So we thank you again for coming on and we will be at it again in a few more days, more episodes. Sounds good. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time to listen to another episode of Why Pay? The Case for Reparations. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to streaming audio to check out our previously recorded content. As always, we ask that you leave us a five-star review and write a review so that we can expand our audience and reach more people. Until next time.